What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Gut Check Radio. And before we get into installment four of this 13-part thyroid series, I wanted to bring you all a message of something that has been on the forefront of my mind. So at the time of me recording this intro, it is the day after Thanksgiving. Had lots of time for loved ones and time spent in reflection and, of course, gratitude. I feel like gratitude is the real obvious. It's the low-hanging fruit theme for after the Thanksgiving season, or even for the season of Thanksgiving leading into Christmas, gr gratitude really is the antidote to a lot of things. And I feel like this time of year really is a great opportunity for us to bring that practice into our own daily practice. But I've been, I've been reading a lot and trying to understand more about suffering and where suffering comes from, how it comes about, but most importantly, what is the, the anecdote to suffering? And there's lots of people, lots of videos on YouTube, on podcasting on different ethers, lots of books written about this very topic that have a much more nuanced discussion and understanding and teaching and application of it than I do. But I've sort of arrived at, at sort of a three little pillar approach here that I'm sure many of you have heard of the idea of body, mind, spirit, you know, these three different layers of wellness, these three different layers of health that we can employ. And when we say body, that means the actual symptoms you have. And so fatigue, bloating, brain fog, your digestive health, your joint health, you know, all those things. Then you have mind and mind is sort of your, how you perceive yourself, your internal dialogue, your soundtracks, your thoughts around others and yourself. So that's at the level of the mind. So we have body, mind, and then we have spirit and spirit is the one where probably the most amount of divide happens in health and wellness. Cause you have some people who have a, a faith religious practice, such as myself. You have some people who have a a practice of spirit around the universe and nature. And you have some people who entirely question that mere existence of, of spirit and more so look at it as a presence of maybe agnostic or even straight atheism, right? That's that's the third layered approach. But they still acknowledge its existence. And what I'm, I'm coming to understand, you know, as we go through this discussion of deep dives of the thyroid, that the thyroid really deals with bodily healing and bodily suffering. So the thyroid symptoms of bloating, brain fog, constipation, inability to lose weight, always feeling cold, outer thirds of the eyebrows thinning. Those are very much bodily suffering, which because it's suffering is suffering. It's not fun. But I, I think it's important that we, that we try not to get lost in bodily suffering because there are deeper layers of wellness. There are deeper layers of our being that we can use to free ourselves of bodily suffering. And just as from outer or outermost layer to innermost layer of body, mind, spirit, I think if we really do a lot of spiritual healing and a lot of spiritual work, that will make us have greater perseverance and greater endurance of the suffering that we might encounter in body and mind. I mean, it's said countless times in scripture that essentially we will encounter bodily suffering. We likely will encounter suffering and temptation of the mind. But if we can keep some semblance of, of hope and some semblance of foundation in our spiritual well-being and our spiritual health, to me, that is the start. That is that is the antidote to bodily suffering. Now, that is not me saying a Bible verse is going to cure you from every ailment. I think it's an incredibly valuable tool of it. There's still things you can do in your nutrition lifestyle to help with bodily symptoms. But I think if you're suffering at the level of the body and you're suffering at the level of the spirit, your spiritual suffering is going to have a far greater negative impact on your health and well-being than your bodily suffering. I've worked with countless people. I had a patient a couple of weeks ago who has had multiple different types of cancer. 
has to adjust their life so much because of their different cancers. Their anatomy has been altered. Organs have been taken out. Just incredibly, I don't want to say horrendous, but just incredible, incredible things where you really feel for this individual. But they have such a solid spiritual practice, such a solid spiritual foundation that you wouldn't even know it by talking to them that at the level of the body, they're suffering like mad. But because their suffering is minimal to none at the spiritual level, that bodily suffering is not who they are. And so that's really the point of me saying this is that if you if you feel like your thyroid symptoms are running your life, you 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 choose not to take part in activities of living because of your thyroid symptoms. That is meaning that your bodily suffering has completely taken over your life, and that I invite you to consider what your spiritual practice look like, whatever that may be, and to understand that there is bodily support for bodily suffering, 100%, nutrition, exercise, sleep, et cetera. But that will only get you so far before at some point you have to start incorporating spiritual healing for bodily suffering. And so I appreciate you guys listening to me on this monologue. I've been, I've been dealing with my own semblance of bodily suffering over the past couple months that I'll maybe allude to as I continue to learn more about it. But it's really forced me to just really become so much more ground in my spiritual practice to understand that there is more to life than just this element of bodily suffering. Because that's very easy to let that ruin your life. And it's been very tempting over the last couple of months for me to just say, woe is me because of the things that have been going on. But to, to know that at the level of the mind, especially the level of the spirit, if I if we, if we can heal there, then we can regain, we can re-express that element of life that we feel like has been taken away from us from our bodily suffering. And without further ado, again, thanks for my monologue. Let's get into some X's and O's and some thyroid stuff. Welcome to Gut Chick Radio, the holistic health podcast where we explore the uniqueness of the human experience to help you navigate your health journey. I'm Nick Belden, a chiropractic physician and functional medicine practitioner. And you all know what's coming next, but the information provided in this podcast is for educational entertainment purposes only and is not intended to diagnose, cure, or treat any disease and do not apply any of the information here without first speaking with your physician. Welcome back, everyone, to the 13 tips to heal your thyroid. We are on to tip four. And for those of you wondering, when is this weird guy talking to us going to start talking about nutrition? Here is the time we're going to do it. So here's tip four. And I, I love this title and I'll, I'll explain it as we unpack it, is that eating is required. So we have to eat to, to live, to maintain, we need sustenance. So focus on these nutrients, and I didn't write this in, but focus on these nutrients to include, to include. If you remember nothing from this video, remember we really should have our focus be on nutrients to include rather than foods and nutrients to avoid. So often in this thyroid, especially when you get into the autoimmune realm space, people are emphasizing foods that you shouldn't eat. Don't eat gluten. Don't touch dairy. Don't even come near beans. Don't think about food additives. Added sugar should be removed from your dictionary. You know, people are vilifying specific compounds, specific molecules, specific nutrients. And I understand where they're doing it from. Most of these individuals are coming at this from a great place. But what we fail to recognize is that when you are constantly focusing on things to avoid, that becomes very restrictive, not only in action and in life, but it becomes very restrictive mentally. And as we become mentally more restricted, we are that much more likely to binge and sort of to veer from the restrictions. Just like as a kid, when someone told us, hey, don't do that. What was the first thing you wanted to do? <laughs> do that exact thing the person told you not to do. So I think... We think that as adults, we just ma magically grow out of that. And to some extent we do, 
But I think we need to realize that to constantly try and hold ourselves to a standard of avoidance is likely going to do more damage for us long-term and that instead we need, we should focus on foods to include nutrients that we know and that have been shown in the literature to be supportive of thyroid function and thyroid health. And when it comes to nutrients for the thyroid, I think we need to start big and go small. And starting most big, we talk about calories. So how, the, the amount of actual density, the amount of energy that's held within the chemical bonds of food that we consume, calories in, calories out, does that matter? We'll talk about that more in a second. But overarching theme, calories do matter when it comes to thyroid health and thyroid function. And as we go later deeper, we get into macronutrients, carbs, fats, proteins. How much do we need? How much of certain ones do we need? Are there ones we should avoid? And if you've listened to the first rant, you know, it's not about avoid. It's about what things to include. So again, the core theme of this, of this episode is going to be nutrients to include to support thyroid function. So we start at the biggest scale, calories. Next on the layer is macronutrients. And finally, the third layer that I actually find the most fun to learn about, and that's micronutrients. So that's vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, polyphenols, all these, all these fancy chemicals that we've heard about, call them resveratrol, call that curcumin, you know, these, these different compounds in different foods that can be beneficial for us beyond just worrying about calories and grams of protein, things like that. All of them still matter in the, and knowing that this is the hierarchy. So when it comes to eating calories, we should first understand that both, both under and over eating calories can contribute to thyroid dysfunction. So it really is, I used to not love this word balance. And now I'm coming to understand that I think that was a message from God to tell me that, hey, the reason you're so insecure about this word is because you need it so much in your own life. And I realized that in so much of wellness, balance, which is a very dynamic term, meaning what's balanced on Monday is not balanced on Tuesday, but trying to achieve some semblance of balance on a day-to-day -day basis is actually incredibly impactful. And it's going to look different, like I said, day-to-day, month-to-month, moment-to-moment even. So finding that balance of calories, right? Keeping you at what's called caloric maintenance. And so many of us in here have probably done the experience of tracking food before, whether it's to deliberately lose weight. So we're trying to eat less calories than we're burning, or maybe it's even to gain weight. Maybe some of us out there have that luxury of wanting to bulk and put on muscle. And so we're trying to eat more calories than we burn. And in essence, to put on muscles, we're trying to overeat calories. And from my experience clinically and working with my patient population is that both approaches can be beneficial, but also can be one of the root reasons why someone is having thyroid dysfunction. And I actually want to start with thyroid symptoms that are associated with under eating calories. This is a problem I see. I know people always talk about the obesity epidemic and we have an excess of calories and excess of hyperpalatable food, which is true, hundred percent true. But there's also still a subset of us out there, myself included, that actually sometimes struggle with under eating calories because of orthorexia or fear of of eating unhealthy food or of this is a condition even called ARFID or avoidant food restrictive eating behavior where you avoid foods because of your word about um, food additives or food colors or you're worried about the, the very, very fine minutiae of certain foods. So you just sort of have this aura about you that only wants to eat quote unquote clean foods, uh, clean eating disorders. Some people have might have even colloquially termed it. It's very real for as someone who's experienced, it's very real. And the symptoms that I've seen manifested, I think, from thyroid dysfunction associated with under consumption of calories. So you're under eating calories and thyroid symptoms develop are things like decreased immune function. I was just talking with one of my patients this past week who originally came to us because they were dealing with bloating, 
fatigue, weren't sleeping well, and they were getting sick a lot more often than they were used to. Very health conscious person, exercising like mad, had a very large emphasis on food quality. And what I find in people who are huge exercise enthusiasts who focus on food quality is they tend to under eat calories because they're told how sugar is essentially the devil and how carbs sort of fall right in line with that and certain fats fall in line with that and certain foods. So because of that, they just tend to under eat calories. They tend to under eat foods. There's still ways to eat enough calories eating whole nutrient dense foods. hundred percent there is. But because of what we're told in the mainstream media, some of these people tend to under eat. And so actually getting sick multiple times in a year might be an indication that your thyroid is mildly dysfunctional because we know the thyroid is heavily involved in cell to cell communication of different immune function and different responses to infection and to bacteria and to viruses and to certain fungi. Like the, the thyroid system is heavily involved in that immune response. Not sleeping throughout the night. We know the same thing. There's like a pretty interesting circadian rhythm to thyroid hormone secretion. I talked about that in my prior tip series on sleep. And, and we know melatonin is also a huge nutrient of concern, concern that has some relation to thyroid hormone. It's not completely been diluted out in the literature what that relationship is, but we know there is one there. I think that speaks to sleep imbalances can be happening as a result of thyroid imbalances concurrently going on. Bloating. We know bloating can be a symptom associated with hormonal imbalances, which if the hormone imbalance is caused by under eating calories, if so, in fact, though, it's the underconsumption of food that might be most be attributed to your bloating. And in the same individual that I'm talking about, they were dealing with intense bloating despite eating fairly low calorie. This tells you, again, something might be going on at the level of the thyroid as a result of under eating calories. Now, some of you might be wondering, logically so, is the solution just as easy as eating enough calories? Yes and no. We'll talk about more, some nutrients or some things that are definitely worth considering as you're starting to improve your nutritional profile to try and to try and improve your thyroid profile. And the last one that I see a lot, and, and, and most people, but even more so in this population of people dealing with thyroid symptoms, despite under eating calories, is dependent on caffeine for energy. You know, you might be sitting there wondering, why is that? Why is that? We talked earlier about there's some relationship, maybe, maybe between melatonin and thyroid hormone, but also between cortisol and thyroid hormone. Cortisol has also been something that's been demonized that we have excess stress and we have excess cortisol. I've talked about that in other podcasts, but we need cortisol to live. It helps us get up in the morning. And sometimes we actually can have imbalances in cortisol as a result of imbalances going on in the thyroid, which could be as a result of not eating enough calories. And as a result of that, we are dependent on caffeine for energy because our body is has an imbalance of cortisol and we need cortisol to function. We need cortisol to give us energy, especially in the morning, especially around workouts. But it's when we have that imbalance of cortisol that symptoms start to manifest and we start needing caffeine to artificially exogenously. What does that mean? Artificially meaning something else exogenous from outside the body. We need to artificially and exogenously alter our cortisol levels. So we go to caffeine when really if things are operating, if our hormonal milieu is operating to the degree that it should endogenously or from within the body, we should be able to produce enough cortisol to keep us going. So that's again, Symptoms associated from under-eating of the thyroid symptoms associated with under-eating, decreased immune function, getting sick more than you're used to, not sleeping throughout the night, intense bloating, or feeling dependent on caffeine throughout the day. And many of you are likely aware of the problems associated with overconsumption of calories in general, the metabolic, cardiovascular, diabetes, PCOS, obesity, we've all heard it, metabolic syndrome. 
but specific to the thyroid, and some of these symptoms have some overlap. There are a lot, there's several thyroid symptoms that I've seen most prominently are attributed to overconsumption of calories or overeating. One is inability to lose weight. People ask me all the time, does calories in, calories out still matter? 100%, it always will. That's just sort of thermodynamics. What we don't fully have sort of taken out yet, or what we haven't fully under, understood to this point is what all impacts calories in and more so what all impacts calories out. It's not just about how much ex ex exercise you did that day, but how much muscle mass you have, how much fidgeting you did, how much sleep you had. So many different inputs that affect the calories out. But when there's an imbalance of calories in and calories out and the calories in is higher than the calories out, that's essentially when weight gain happens. Now, do hormones affect that? 100%. Hormones affect your energy levels, which affects your output, which affects how many calories actually go out. Hormones affect your satiety, which affect how much you eat, which affect how much comes in. So hormones definitely play a role on the calories in, calories out side of things. And the second one is fatigue after meals. This is another one that's sort of textbook blood sugar, a textbook metabolic dysfunction. But because of the thyroid's intimate relationship with metabolic health, and especially with insulin and blood sugar, we know that fatigue after meals can be a sign that your thyroid hormone is a little imbalanced. And lastly, elevated blood lipids. So I haven't really talked much about objective symptoms. This is probably the first, this is the first one I brought up. Elevated blood lipids. So that could mean elevated triglycerides or even elevated LDL cholesterol, maybe above, we'll say 170 to 200 can be, and I've talked previously on podcast episodes about why cholesterol isn't the best predictor for cardiovascular health, but for metabolic health, it's actually fairly effective is imbalances in that elevations of those or triglycerides could be related to imbalances going on in the thyroid, which are related to more calories in versus calories out. So that's everything from the caloric perspective. So now we're going to talk about things at the macronutrient perspective from looking at many people's lifestyle logging or many people's nutritional habits. There's one macronutrient that people grossly underconsume, and that's protein. I think we have this idea that, oh, I have, oh, I had steak at dinner. I had a sandwich with some lunch meat at dinner, or I had an egg or two at breakfast. I got protein, right? Like there's protein in that. And while true, there is protein in those meals, there's a certain threshold of protein we need to be aiming for per meal to give us all those beneficial effects. And in this video, this beneficial thyroid, metabolic boosting, immune balancing, cardiovascular balancing effects. That's about 30 grams of protein a meal. Now, what does that look like for people? So we'll use the example of that person I just gave. Like, hey, I had an egg for breakfast, I had a sandwich for lunch, and I had a steak for dinner. So more than likely, the meat you had for dinner was probably got you to 30 grams of protein. From talking and seeing people's logs enough, most people get enough protein at dinner. But one, one tip I would give there is to ensure you're eating enough protein, because some people say, well, protein's just so filling and I can't finish it all. That's because when you have a plate that has a steak, mashed potatoes, bread, broccoli, rice, you end up eating a lot of it at once. So you end up getting full fast because you're eating a lot of fat, a lot of carbs, and a lot of protein. So you're just eating so many things. And then people tend to undereat protein because they're overeating carbs and fat. So how you flip that is eat your protein first. Eat your protein first because protein is the most satiating. You want to eat it first because it will make you fullest the fast. And then it will make you reduce your consumption a lot of times of fats and proteins. If you're trying to gain weight, you can actually flip that and you might actually want to save your protein for last, but there's a very small subset of people that's your work for. But most of that, they're trying to either maintain or lose weight. 
eating protein first will leave less space for carbs and fat available. So your pie, you know, and here I am talking in a circle for those of you watching on YouTube, this whole circle is your pie of calories. And if you have most of that pie come from protein because you eat your protein first, then you have this little pie, maybe 10 to 15% left for carbs and fat. And then you get a lot of the metabolic benefits from protein. 30 grams a meal, three to four times a day. What does that look like? Again, we'll use that example. One egg roughly is six, six grams of protein. So for those of you who are really good at math, how many eggs do you then need to eat to get to that 30 gram meal? You need to eat about five. Now I tell my patients this, I'm like five eggs, that's crazy. I'm like, fair. Can we do three to four? And then as you add in avocado, sweet potato, vegetables, maybe some nuts, as you add in other foods, that number likely is gonna get closer to 30. So I just tell people, if you can have your protein source, try to get you that 30 grams a number, and then everything else is just an added bonus on top. And so for lunch, we'll say the person who wants a sandwich, that's fair. We'll say maybe they want to put it on a, on a lettuce wrap. If you go about a fistful and a half of meat, whether that's a deli meat, which I don't love, or leftover ham, turkey, because it's Thanksgiving, those are the two that come to mind, or beef or chicken or pork, leftover from the night before, wrap it in lettuce, put it in a bowl, a fistful and a half, so you take your fist, if you take one hand and put your fist inside of it, one fistful is roughly about 20 to 25 grams of any protein source. It's not incredibly the most accurate, but it gets us in the ballpark. So one and a half fistfuls gets you to that 30 grams level. And any other starches, vegetables, fats, any other carbs you put on the side of that will only be an added benefit. So again, eat your protein first, especially at that breakfast and lunch meal, because those set the tone for your eating habits the rest of the day. And dinner, like I said, dinner is easy because most people tend to sit down and they're more likely to have a bigger meal at dinner. So dinner tends to be one people get in well. And then I always tell people, look, if you focus on food quality, the carbs and fat will fall where they should. So if you have a burger and French fries, you're likely to not have the right ratios of carbs and protein because you're eating highly palatable, highly processed foods that are overriding your satiety mechanisms. But if you're focusing on a steak with broccoli and a sweet potato, you're going to eat enough of those foods if you're in the right mental space and you have a good relationship with food. You're going to eat enough to feel full, but not eat enough to feel overly full. I mean, Thanksgiving, as most of us do, even myself who does this for a living, I still probably overate, but I'm mindful of that. And I know things to sort of do to help support that in the subsequent days. And I don't beat myself up about it. That's a big, I never beat myself up about overeating. Don't do that. That makes it way much, makes it way, way worse. But if you focus on whole foods, then your satiety mechanisms will be allowed to fall where they are supposed to. And then your carbs and fat will fall in accordance with your protein. So focus on protein first and whole foods, and then your carbs and fat ratios. You don't need to worry about tracking. You don't need to worry about any of that. Is there a time and place for sure? But if you focus on protein, 30 grams a meal, three to four times a day, carbs and fat will fall where they should. That's going to do wonders for supporting your thyroid function. All right, time for some micronutrients. We're going to talk about four prominent micronutrients when it comes to thyroid health. And now we can have a little bit of nuance, a little bit of fun. And I'm going to ramble a little bit more. So for those of you who don't love my rambles, maybe now you want to click off. If you love my rambles, you're going to love this next little 15, 20 minute bit. I'm going to focus on four nutrients. There's so many nutrients that you could look up for thyroid. You'll probably find dozens and dozens of them. I'm going to focus on four that I found to be clinically useful, but also practical, but also in the literature, there's shown to be some benefit. And the first one is one of everyone's favorites. That's vitamin D. So we do know from the literature that vitamin D deficiency, which is defined in different places by different outlets from the way I use it, anything less than 30 milligrams per deciliter, 
is typically associated with vitamin D deficiency. And deficiency of vitamin D is associated with an increased risk for autoimmunity. Now, what did I not say? I did not say that, vit that vitamin D deficiency causes autoimmunity. I said it's associated with an increased risk. Autoimmunity is incredibly complex, incredibly nuanced, and there's lots of development that still need to happen about that the whole idea of autoimmunity, which I'll be just be frank as, as a Christian, when people say your body's attacking itself and it's wrongly attacking yourself, I actually don't think that's right. I, th I think the body was perfectly designed. I think it's either something happening in the environment that's leading to this sort of mismatch of the immune response, or it's actually the body's way of trying to communicate something to you deeper about what's going on with your behaviors and your environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Many rank on. But deficiency is associated with an increased risk. It is not definitive. It does not mean everyone who's vitamin D deficient will get Hashimoto's. It also doesn't mean everyone who's vitamin D deficient should immediately start supplementing their way to get to over 100. I'll talk about that more in a second. Because we, we don't have much evidence for vitamin D improving thyroid function. We do have some evidence that shows that vitamin D supplementation in those who are deficient big key in those who are deficient can improve thyroid autoimmunity markers. I'm talking about those TPO antibodies I talked about in the first video. But like I said, we don't have a lot that vitamin D can actually improve thyroid function by way of either hormone levels or either symptoms, fatigue, bloating, brain fog, et cetera. So really I look at vitamin D, my, my, my theory and thinking around this whole vitamin has changed a lot. In the beginning, I thought everyone should be on it all the time. And why wouldn't you want your levels to be as high as possible? Then you realize vitamin D is, is fat soluble, meaning it has a higher likelihood to become toxic compared to B vitamins, which are water soluble, but that's not even the concern. I think artificially driving up vitamin D higher than your body deemed it should be is problematic. What do I mean by that? So say you get a blood test and your vitamin D levels are 25. Well, I'm using the American standard units here, 25. And deficiency is anything below 30. And so you're logically thinking, hey, I'm gonna supplement because I guess I'm deficient. What if that deficiency, or we will not even call it a deficiency because that implies that it's wrong. It's not wrong. It's what your body is adapted to. What if that number 25, again, isn't wrong. It's just the number your body has adapted to based on the environment and based on the lifestyle it has been put under. So that means that supplementation should not be the first thing you go to to try and improve that number. Why? Because you're artificially driving up vitamin D when maybe your vitamin D was at low for a reason. Maybe your body is trying to protect itself from some of the excess effects of vitamin D, or maybe it's using up vitamin D as part of an immune response. And if you give it more vitamin D, maybe it might actually not be helpful. How do you regulate that? Well, supplement with supplementation, it's very easy to override our body's normal physiological functions. It's, I would call it evolutionarily unfamiliar to take 10,000 IUs of vitamin D, or I've worked with people that have gone to their primary care doctor and been given 50,000 IU shots of vitamin D because they've either had Hashimoto's or because they have deficiency, which I get why they're doing that. That's, that's a very myopic, very like, oh, if deficient, we need to make it non-deficient and you're fine. I wish it was that simple. It's not. Again, your body has adapted to your existing environment to have low vitamin D. You should asking why it is. And most of the time, you know what it is? It's because people are not getting enough sunlight. So if you are vitamin D deficient, the first question should not be, where can I find my supplement? Your first question should be, where can I find sun or food sources to allow my body to be making enough vitamin D? I mean, think about this. Say your vitamin D test comes back at 25 
anything below 30 is quote unquote deficient and you never get sunlight. Guess what probably happens if you get outside for 10, 15 minutes a day? What's probably going to happen to your vitamin D levels? It's probably going to go up and it's probably going to go up to the level that's no longer deemed deficient. Now, if your vitamin D levels are at 25 and 30s, 30 below is deficient and you're out in the sun exposing 80% of your body for three to four hours a day and it's deficient, do not start supplementing because to me, that is a sign your body does not want more vitamin D. <laughs> that is a sign of something else going on that it is using up vitamin D for and you need to find a physician to work with that'll help you uncover why that is. So in either approach, your first answer should not be supplemental vitamin D. Your first and hopefully your last answer should be sunlight and food. Now on, on the sunlight front, there's a really, really helpful app called D-Minder that does its best to predict how much vitamin D you will absorb from the sun at any one time, because there's so many different factors that affect vitamin D absorption. How much sunscreen, if any, you're using. Any SPF or sun protecting factor sunscreen of eight or higher will block vitamin D absorption. How many of you have put on a sunscreen of eight or lower? Probably none. So if you're using sunscreen, you're probably blocking vitamin D absorption. Number two, your skin color. So that the darker you are, the more you have to be outside to obtain the benefits of vitamin D. And we all know a friend who's super pale, who after being, after just thinking about the sun starts to burn, that's someone who doesn't need to be in the sun, thankfully as long to get the benefits of vitamin D. And thirdly, people ask, how long do I need to be out in the sun? A, this D-Minder app does a fantastic job of telling you that based on your longitude and latitude, how close you are to the equator, what time of year it is, how much cloud cover that is, how much of your skin you're exposing, your skin complexion, like we just talked about. But then people ask as a really rough estimate, how long? If you're in the sun enough to where you got burnt, you probably didn't need to be out that long. The theory is, say it takes you 20 minutes to be out in the sun to be burnt. If you're out there for five to 10, you probably got your maximal amount of vitamin D absorption. Once you get to the point at which you start to burn, you're probably not gaining a lot of the benefits from excess vitamin D absorption. And on the food front, again, that's my little rosy picture on the sun. On the food front, there are fantastic food sources. A, a lot of fish and egg yolks and shiitake mushrooms. Shiitake mushrooms are a fantastic food. And why shiitake specifically, I'm actually not familiar. But think about mushrooms are absorbing a lot of the ultraviolet light from the sun. And so because of that, they have a they have a different form of vitamin D called D2. We don't need to get into a lot of the nuance of that because I'll put you all to sleep more than I already have. But D3 is the form that is the active form. That's the form you find in animal foods. Cod liver oil is a fantastic, some people consider it a supplement. You could also consider it a food because like I said, it's an oil similar to like an olive or an avocado oil. So you could call it a food. Sardines, egg yolks are going to be, to me, egg yolks are nature's multivitamin, you know, four to five egg, egg yolks from a pasture raised chicken, because again, when they're pasture raised, they're outside. So they are exposed to the sun. So the food they eat is exposed to the sun and they eat the grass that's been exposed to the sun. And the grass has, because the grass has seen the sun, the grass has made vitamin D. And then the chicken eats the grass that has vitamin D. Now the chicken creates vitamin D, but if the chicken just eats feed that wasn't exposed to vitamin D in the sun, it's not gonna make vitamin D in its egg yolk. Let me take a brother, a, a breather while I come back from that. So anyways, sunlight, get D minder, understand more about what time of year, like right now in Phoenix here in the end of November, I have to be outside for a long time to get a thousand I use, but in the summertime, I only have to be outside for about five minutes <laughs> to get a thousand I use of vitamin D. Next one, selenium. Selenium is a mineral, is an element, and it is used 
to help increase the conversion of something called T4 to T3. Now, if we talked about, remember back from my first video, T4 is the inactive thyroid hormone. T4 is the active thyroid hormone. Why does the body do that? Because it's beautifully designed to hold on to T4 as long as there's a stressor and to then only make T3 as it needs. So it's, it's this incredible sort of logistical and stocking mechanism, you know, similar to how Costco does a fantastic job of stocking its shelves. And probably a lot of stores have done some different things for stocking the shelves or Black Friday. Thyroid does a great job at stocking and not converting all of it to T3 because of a different stressor and only converting what it absolutely needs. So that's why the conversion happens. So selenium helps with that conversion of T4 inactive to T3 active. It also helps protect the thyroid from something called oxidative stress. Oxidative stress is a big buzzword. We've all heard that many times in the health and wellness community. And the thyroid generates actually a lot of its own oxidative stress as a result of creating T4 to T3. So it's almost the selenium that is needed helps go toward protecting the thyroid from oxidative stress as a result of doing things. It's sort of how in a factory there's waste and you need someone in charge of waste management to help disperse of that waste so it doesn't end up in the local community's water supply. And so selenium is sort of the waste management guy. It sort of helps to clean up a lot of that excess waste and oxidative stress that happens as a result of just normal thyroid functioning. And what are the top sources of selenium? The, the, the one that is most prominent and that is most often touted are Brazil nuts. But what you come to understand is the selenium content of foods varies widely based on the soil content. And because you all have heard all the different things about how our soil is depleted of minerals compared to what it was 200 years ago and glyphosate and Roundup and all this stuff. Again, lots of fear-mongering. Point of this podcast isn't fear-mongering, it's just education, just trying to tell you things to include. But there is considerable variance in Brazil nuts. It, I've even like a 20-fold difference where sometimes one Brazil nut will get you your week's worth of selenium and one Brazil nut might just be one-tenth of your day's worth of selenium. So there's incredible variance which isn't very helpful <laughs> when I first read that. So it is helpful. I've, and I think, again, as an insurance policy, because our body is so resilient in its ability to store, you know, if it get rid of excess selenium or to hold on to the amount we need, eat Brazil nuts <laughs> if you're concerned about selenium. Just eat them. But be very careful, though. I, I tend to veer on the side of, like, we want to avoid toxicity. And so I tell my patients if I feel like selenium deficiency is something that comes up based on their labs and their symptoms and their goals, eat a couple Brazil nuts a couple times a week. So I say a couple for a couple, maybe two to three nuts, two to three days a week. So you don't have to be super particular about it. And yes, your wife might think it's weird when you only open a bag of nuts and eat two of them. But just tell her, hey, hey, babe, or, or hey, hon, I'm trying to protect against toxicity here. <laughs> I'm trying to get the optimal amount of selenium for me. That's a big one. And that, that really Brazil nuts is the one you need to be most particular, most protective over. Then the other three foods I'm about to mention, you can actually get away with eating larger quantities. Egg yolks. Their egg yolks are, again, again, I'm telling you, one of nature's multivitamins is the egg yolk, the yellowness. As, as someone who came from a former bodybuilding community of demonizing egg yolks and only eating egg whites, I now probably eat more yolks than I do whites. So it, it literally have come full circle, full yolk, for lack of a better term. And seafood. Any seafood source, whether it's sardines, you know, you do want to choose more of the, the more environmentally friendly, less mercury-laden fish, such as your sardines, your salmon, your oysters, sort of your your top feed, not your um, bottom of the food or not your top of the food chain, like your king sword or, or king salmon. And it was, it was king swordfish. And there was the fish people always said it's high in mercury. And then I'm wondering who is eating king swordfish every day? I did have a professor in college, economics professor, who was eating canned tuna every day, which 
I think the can part contributed to this, but he actually got mercury poisoning and was out of school for a couple months. I remember it was awesome. Not that he was sick, but because we didn't have to go to class, but it turns out he was, he was actually a health enthusiast, but he was just eating excess mercury from canned tuna. And then wheat products, again, wheat demonized, but there's actually very nutrient dense sources of wheat, particularly ancient wheat. So wheat's, wheat has been around for thousands of years. So whether it's um, wheat germ or farro or even things like couscous and a lot of these ancient grains or tartary buckwheat or buckwheat in general, some of these more ancient grains, sour gum, sourdough might be a little more nutrient dense versus just your standard um, large bread company that rhymes with Lunder bread. <laughs> that is very popular. All right. Next up, we got iron. Iron is a very, a very interesting nutrient. It's needed for the actual creation of thyroid hormone production. So both in the T4, the T3 process. And when you're wanting to check your iron levels, I run into this all the time. So I have to tell everyone this. You want to check your ferritin levels as opposed to just iron on a blood test. What I mean, if you're going to your provider and they say they're going to do an iron panel, ask them, are you including a serum ferritin? And if they say, what is that? Go to a different office. <laughs> or maybe if they're open, educate them on, hey, ferritin is a storage form of iron. The When you get just iron on a blood test, that's measuring about 0.3% of it, whereas ferritin is measuring about 30 to 40% of it. The rest of iron is bound up in hemoglobin that you'll get on a complete blood count that you might screen for anemia. But if you want to run your actual iron levels, you have to run serum ferritin to get a full sense. You can't just run iron and say, I know my iron levels. You have to run ferritin. So if you take away nothing from the iron section, run your ferritin levels. That will tell you what happens with your iron. And from my experience, most women tend to be a little lower on the ferritin. Most men, ironically enough, actually run into iron overload or excess ferritin, which has its own sort of troubles, but we know we don't need to get into that here. So know your ferritin levels first and foremost. I think that's a, a mineral that it's hard to know symptomatically if it's high or low. So I think it's definitely warranted to run ferritin levels. And what are your top sources? If you feel like you need more, if you feel like you're looking to support more of your iron levels, liver, I mean, just liver, liver and egg yolk, oysters, probably three foods that if I was stranded on a desert island and I didn't care about taste and I only wanted sustenance from three foods, I would probably pick liver, egg yolks, and oysters because <laughs> they're, they're just it's all across the board, so nutrient dense. And ironically enough, liver and oysters are both on this list as some of the top sources of iron. If you think our body stores iron in our liver, and so a lot of animals store their iron in their liver and no the liver does not store toxins. The liver detoxifies toxins. So when you eat a liver from a hopefully pasture or grass-fed or ethically raised animal, you'll be fine because toxins are stored where? In fat cells most of the time because fat cells are a great place to store them and the liver just detoxifies them. You do not need to worry about eating excess toxins or heavy metals from liver if you're getting it from a good source. Egg yolks did not make this list. Egg yolks are not a fantastic source of liver, so know that. So if you're more on the plant route, completely understandable. Sesame, pumpkin seeds, and cacao. Those really, from my understanding, from what I've seen, are the three foods that not only are very iron rich, but also three plant foods that people will eat. There's some very obscure plant foods. Sometimes you get into some different types of uh, wheat germs. There's some different types of grain that really no one's heard of, and you, know, you can only get at certain parts of the planet at certain times of the year. So sesame and pumpkin seeds and cacao, you can sort of get at all seasons of the year. And I put red meat on here as another great source but really any meat source is going to be a fantastic source of iron that you eat consistently. And so for some of my, I wouldn't call them vegan. They're mostly plant-based. They actually decide they're like, Hey, if I'm going to eat one 
animal food, what should I eat? And I say liver. And then when they say, I don't want to eat liver, I'm like, okay, eat oysters. And they say, I don't want to eat oysters. They're like, okay, what about a steak once a week? They're like, I can do that. I'm like, great, let's settle there. And even that a lot of times can be enough to help address some of their iron levels. All right, the last nutrient might be one that's, that's talked about the most and might be the most misunderstood in the thyroid community. And that's iodine. Iodine, similar to iron, is also needed for thyroid hormone production. So it's, it's necessary. But also thyroid cells are the only cells in the body that can use iodine. Why does this matter? I had a family member who had a condition called Graves' disease. And Graves' disease is where you actually, it's an autoimmune condition to the thyroid where it makes too much thyroid hormones that you have the complete opposite symptoms of someone dealing with low thyroid. So people low thyroid have low heart rate. People with high thyroid have incredibly high heart rate and all sorts of other conditions, struggle, struggle, keeping on weight is also a big condition. Lots and lots of rampant anxiety because your heart rate's ramped up so much. And so what, what they determined in the medical community is that if you actually give radioactive iodine, or if you give too much iodine, you can actually obliterate the thyroid. And that's their goal in certain, certain instances. This family member I'm talking about actually had their thyroid radioactively obliterated because they were making too much of it. And while I understand why they're doing that, that's definitely not a root cause approach. That is a symptom band-aid approach. And this family member now has to be on thyroid hormone for the rest of their life because they can't make hormone. As I talked about in the first video, being on thyroid medication is not the worst medication to be on. There's far more side effect heavy medications than thyroid hormone replacement. <clears throat> but so know that. That's why iodine is quite fascinating because thyroid is the only cells in the body that can use it. And there's what's called a U-shaped curve with iodine intake. What does that mean? So for those of you listening on YouTube, you'll appreciate this on audio. So draw a U with your hands and imagine the Y-axis is the incidence of autoimmunity. So as you go higher up the Y-axis, there's a higher incidence of autoimmunity. And on the X-axis, it's how much iodine you consume. So you have the Y-axis going up and down, how much autoimmunity on the X-axis, your intake of iodine. And what a U-shaped curve means is the people who eat both the most and the least amount of iodine, if you were to separate people out by quartiles, the people who eat the most and the least amount of iodine are the people most likely to develop autoimmunity. So what happened is in developing countries, they got lots of thyroid issues because there wasn't enough iodine. So what they started doing was adding iodine to all table salt. It was called iodized table salt. And subsequently, because of that, we've seen an uptick and autoimmunity, again, it's not causal, it's just associative, and autoimmunity in the United States. So they're understanding now there's a U-shaped curve where people who eat too much iodine, people don't eat enough iodine, both could be at an increased risk for thyroid hormone. And there's a sweet spot. That bottom of the U is a sweet spot curve for iodine intake and thyroid function. Now, how do I communicate this to people? A lot of the people I work with that are very sort of paleo, ancestral, holistic, tend to be on the side of the U that don't eat enough iodine. So for them, my recommendations are edible seaweed, one or two times a week, great source, fish and shellfish, because you mostly find iodine from the sea. But then the reason sea salt doesn't have iodine is because iodine easily evaporates in the sun. So sea salt, when the way it's processed and harvested, actually loses its iodine as it evaporates from the sun. So it gets added back to table salt. <clears throat> so iodized table salt is actually a great way for even us paleo ancestral, some more holistic people to get enough iodine, say, you know, the one or two times a month that you might go out, it's okay to use that iodized table salt, and it might actually be beneficial for you. Could there be other heavy metals, other microplastics? Maybe again, that's fear mongering. I don't want to get into that, but I think to focus on things to include 
the one or two times a week you go out to a restaurant, I think you'd be fine incorporating a little bit of that iodized table salt to get you enough. But if you're completely against that, I would consider eating edible seaweed one or two times a week, fish and shellfish of your choice, the nutrient dense parts like we talked about, the omega-3 rich sardines, salmon, oysters. And then if you're not even eating a whole foods diet, transitioning to a whole foods diet, either way, you should probably think about including more seaweed from a nutrient density, more fish and shellfish, and you might be someone who can get away with eating less iodized table salt. So very controversial topic. Again, U-shaped curve, eating the occasional iodized table salt, not the worst thing in the world. So the four nutrients for thyroid health. I hope you guys have enjoyed. Again, there's, there's much more nuance you can go into. I've done a prior episode on this. I think it's back somewhere episode 20 to 30, where I talk about even more detail about each one of the nutrients. But I wanted this video to really be the nutrients to include because there's so much fear mongering in the health and wellness community. So many things, so many people telling you to avoid, so many things not to do, so many things don't touch. Again, as a child, if you were told not to touch something, what did you want to do? Immediately touch it. So I tell you, do touch that thing. Do eat that food. It'll help your thyroid. Thank you all for trusting me to be a part of your day's experience. If you enjoyed the show and found it informative or maybe entertaining, I invite you to share the love by leaving the rating you think I'm deserving of on your podcast platform of choice. Or if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you do all the things. Like, comment, and subscribe if you care to see me ramble any more than you already did today. And for more free content and guides, you can check out my clinic website at www.hivenaturalhealth, all one word, forward slash free dash resources. And until next time, my friends, trust in your gut.